So at the time, we knew that we needed to do something. We just weren't sure what that something was or what that something should be based on any research. It was just a gut feel at the time. Many people can empathize with Michelle, a mother of high-ability students who we've heard from in previous episodes. As a family member, friend, or teacher invested in the growth and development of a student, you may have a gut feeling that their needs aren't being met. But when that happens, what do you do? That's our topic. Hi, I'm Eric Parsons. And I'm Andrew Bauer. Welcome to Accelerated Thinking, a podcast that blends educational research, policy, and advocacy. Thank you for joining us for our third episode in this series examining the opportunities and challenges faced by high-ability learners. Please listen to the end of the episode to hear how you can share your comments, questions, and suggestions with us to include in future episodes. In episode one, we explored how academic acceleration is an effective research-based educational practice for supporting high-ability students' intellectual growth and reasons why school administrators can be hesitant to use acceleration for students who need it. The lack of accelerated learning opportunities is widespread. And in episode two, we examined one of the primary obstacles, policy, the lack thereof, and how the Jack Kent Cooke Foundation's report, Equal Talents, Unequal Opportunities, shed light on the fact that the vast majority of states are failing to support high-ability students in the most basic ways. For many, the catalyst is a gut feeling that something is missing or needs to be done differently for a student to reach their potential. When a C student scores well on tests, or an A student doesn't appear to put any real effort into their work, or like Michelle's son, behavior overshadows academic achievement, you're pretty sure something needs to be done. However, it's essential that any action taken is backed by evidence to ensure that the appropriate solution is employed. Without clear policy and guidelines, the path can be murky. But not having a clear path doesn't negate the need to take action. Who helps determine what opportunities are available? Who do you talk to first? We got some advice from Dr. Calvert at the Center for Talent Development. Well, if your school has a gifted coordinator or a, an advanced learning coordinator, that's usually the um, best first point of contact because they're more often familiar with the research behind acceleration and would usually be involved um, in the process of accelerating students um, at schools where there's a policy in place. Um, if not, um, I would uh, start by talking with your teacher um, to see if she's aware of a process um, and then from there probably go to um, your school principal if your child is a kindergarten or elementary school student or if they're um, an older student or a student in a larger school where they would have a guidance counselor uh, that would also be a good place to approach. It's important to note that each school district's resources are going to differ and some schools and districts won't even have a gifted specialist on staff. Whether that's the case or not, it's important to include the people who are already working with the student, as well as those who are familiar with the student's academic abilities and needs. As Dr. Calvert said, the child's teacher is a great place to start. Other people to involve would be the gifted program coordinator if they have one, school psychologists or counselors depending on the child's age, and eventually the school administrators, including the principal or assessment and instructional leaders. For any intervention to be successful, everyone involved needs to be aware of the circumstances and on board with implementing solutions. This leads us back to policy 
and being able to say, this student needs intervention. This is when we need to examine how schools identify high ability students in need of acceleration. Um, so usually the first step in determining whether or not a student should be accelerated is to do some assessment. Um, we recommend that uh, districts use the Iowa Acceleration Scale because it's a great resource for um, weighing the academic, um, cognitive, and social developmental factors together uh, to help make a good decision. Um, and so um, it might be wise for parents to request to go through that process if the school doesn't already have an established process for evaluating students. Um, it can also be helpful um, when parents approach the school uh, to bring some information that kind of helps document the fact that the student is an advanced learner and might benefit from um, advanced learning opportunities. So for example, um, you know, and not that you want to overwhelm, um, you know, your teacher on their on, on their first contact, but um, to have handy um, any recent um, test scores, um, whether that's just on state assessments that your child has taken at school um, or any outside assessments that a student has participated in, such as through like CTD's NUMATS program or another one of the talent search centers. Assessment to determine a student's need and readiness for acceleration is an important next step. This may involve reviewing data that already exists, as well as collecting new information on academic achievement, aptitude for learning, and developmental readiness. As Dr. Calvert mentioned, the IO Acceleration Scale is a good example of an objective tool that includes a variety of factors in decision making. In school systems where the identification process is not clearly defined, it can be helpful to ask if they have used or are using a tool such as the IO Acceleration Scale and what can be done to help the district select and implement the data they need. The IAS isn't the only good assessment out there. And identification isn't one size fits all. So this really becomes an issue of finding agreement on what indicators are useful and may be readily available to the school so that steps can be taken sooner rather than later. As Dr. Calbert described, having clear objective data in hand is the best place to start. That being said, addressing concerns about socialization and non-academic factors of learning can often be the next big hurdle. There's ample evidence that many high ability students benefit from interacting with other students of similar ability and interest regardless of age. However, many people, parents, teachers, and administrators included, are often reticent to place students in classes with older students, even if they believe it can be academically beneficial. While any significant change to a student's learning environment should be thoughtfully considered, it's important to examine how the benefits may outweigh the risks. That was certainly the experience for Michelle and her son Liam. What we found, we, we, what we found through the process was that while he was still an immature nine-year-old, he was much less disruptive and he really rose to the challenge and uh, was engaged. And I think it actually helped his maturity. He still had the fidgets, right? He had all this extra energy that he had to get rid of um, as he was um, in class. But he really rose in terms of maturity and the way he was interacting with people and getting along with people. And uh, the kids were just so nice to him. There are lots of misconceptions about acceleration and its impact on social-emotional development, which frankly aren't likely to disappear completely. But 
with some thoughtful conversation, data collection, and a transition plan, addressing those concerns becomes significantly easier. And then it's also helpful, I think, um, because schools often kind of wonder about, um, is the child um, socially equipped or developmentally ready to be with older students, um, to also think about and document um, experiences that your child might have had where they've um, successfully interacted with um, older students, whether that's in an outside of school academic enrichment program that is multi-age or multi-grade, um, or even in you know things like um, scouting, church activities, um, sports, um, but where you can document that you know this student um, can adapt and navigate um, successfully with a wider um, environment. As Dr. Calvert indicated, it may help to find opportunities for your student to join community groups and activities that provide opportunities for engagement in topics of interest with other students of many different ages. This can include an online community such as the Center for Talent Development's Backpack Program. It also includes things like gaming clubs, makerspace engineering groups, and more, any of which can provide valuable opportunities for mentorship and social engagement that can also help you document your student's success and growth in that environment. That said, we understand that even with data in hand, it can be daunting to advocate for an individual student's needs. But by asking questions, exploring options, and agreeing on next steps, long-term communication and collaboration becomes eminently easier. Collaboration between parents and educators has always been important. But it's now a priority in educational standards, too, like in the NAGC pre-K through grade 12 programming standards. Strong working relationships and communication result in transparent district policies and procedures that serve students effectively. Knowing that, parents can be confident that being included in policy decisions will affect their children in necessary and meaningful ways, and that they have every reason to push for it. So without parents getting directly involved and demanding to be involved in their students' um, education, this ship was never going to turn around. Um, So I think it's really important that parents and um, administration and teachers are all working close together so that you everybody understands where they're coming from and what their challenges are and uh, what great things can come out of advancement uh, for the kids. And it's important to remember that everyone wants to see students reach their potential. Dr. Calvert spoke with us about recent findings in that regard. It's interesting, at CTD, um, the last few years, we've been uh, involved in a lot of um, school district um, gifted education program evaluation, um, kind of professional development. And um, going into those, there's kind of a popular assumption that most teachers are vehemently opposed to acceleration. Um, but we've had an item on the survey that we ask the different stakeholder groups within a school uh, for these last few years. And one thing uh, that, that basically forces uh, people to make a choice, if you could only do one or the other, Um, Would you rather provide opportunities for students to go broader and deeper within grade level curriculum um, or provide opportunities for students that have already mastered grade level content to move on? Um, And surprisingly, in um, many of the districts, um, teachers actually do support 
providing those opportunities for students who are ready to be able to move on. Um, and that's also true of parents. So this is an area where people might assume there's not much consensus, but there often is. And so doing a quick survey of stakeholders to confirm that um, might let you uh, kind of accelerate that step. Um, if there's not already um, consensus around acceleration and the need to move forward, um, a great way to start would be to um, do some parent meetings um, and to share um, some of the resources um, from CTD, from NAGC, from the Bell and Blank Center on acceleration. Um, maybe start um, a local study group around um, the Nation Empowered Report that's a great user-friendly uh, summary of a lot of the research on acceleration um, and then use that to bridge um, into a conversation about are there students that need to be accelerated in our school and if so how might we approach doing that so there's little reason to believe that you won't find support from teachers and as dr calvert just explained there are resources available to help bridge the gaps you may encounter one resource that can help get you started is the NAGC Class Advocacy Guide. And we'll link to that in the description section of this episode. And in line with Dr. Calvert, Michelle also recommends that districts involve parents directly in the process of building consensus. I think that every school district should have a parent focus group for acceleration. And if your district doesn't have a focus group of parents for that, um, you should ask your district to create a focus group for acceleration. Honestly, advocacy can be exhausting, but working to build consensus and getting involved with policy decisions will help in the long term. Once changes are made to meet a student's current needs, it is super important that each subsequent year of school doesn't become a new struggle to gain access to the necessary learning opportunities. Ensuring that there's vertical alignment in district policies from elementary all through high school can sound like a daunting task. But bringing a variety of stakeholders together to work on the broader process means it doesn't have to be. Expanding efforts beyond individual advocacy is incredibly meaningful both for your student and the larger community. Another thing that we did that was super easy to do was um, start up a Facebook page. And um, so we started up a Facebook page for the parents, and there's over 600 members on it now. But the goal was um, to see how children were being dealt with across the district. We wanted to see if other schools were facing similar inconsistencies because we're all going to be together at the same junior high and at the same high school. So we wanted to make sure that whatever we were getting at our local elementary school um, that it was fair and that other kids at other elementary schools were also getting the same opportunities for advancement and for growth. Um, so starting a parent group that reached out to uh, other schools was, I think, a key part of our bringing this to the forefront of the district's attention. With anything as important as a child's future, it's worth the effort to get policies in place that meet students' needs. And it never hurts to become more engaged in your community. Keep in mind that administrators and teachers want to meet the needs of their students. So you can assume that they're inclined to help you if you're willing to work with them. Strive to be inclusive. Search out new resources and increase awareness throughout the process. School-based advocacy is valuable. But remember that getting involved at the federal, state, and local level is also important 
and often more easily done than it seems. Find the gifted education advocacy groups in your area, see what work is being done, and find out what help they need. I would say I felt nervous and worried that um, they were really ready for the next challenge. And I think that's just a normal human behavior. Whenever there's something new, we're worried about how we're going to respond or react to it. Um, and once we get in and get a little more comfortable, that worry goes away. So I would say even now, I mean, like he went, he's going to the high school and he's in a pre-calculus class. And at the beginning of the year, I was so worried. I was like, this is big for a seventh grader to handle. Um, but he's doing really well in the class. So I'm not so worried about it anymore. When you see your child struggling in school, you're right to be concerned. And it's appropriate to take action. Addressing your child's needs is a priority. But given the time you need to invest, use your experience to promote change that will also benefit the overall learning environment and the broader community. Just stick with it and persevere. It's going to take time to make change. So sticking with it and just understanding that you are going to have some setbacks, but that if you stay in it for the, the long haul, you'll have success. This episode wraps up our initial discussion of acceleration practices, policy, and advocacy. Links to the articles and resources we've discussed during this podcast are posted in the description for this episode. We hope this podcast has been informative and helpful and would appreciate it immensely if you would show your support by sharing this with more people. We are now in the process of selecting additional topics and gathering listener feedback for future episodes. We would love to hear from you so we can address your questions, responses, and suggestions. You can comment on our SoundCloud or email me directly at andrew.bauer at northwestern.edu. Or email me, eric, E-R-I-K, dot parsons at northwestern.edu. Thanks again for listening. And we would like to thank Michael Beach for the music to this podcast. I'm Eric Parsons. And I'm Andrew Bauer. And you've been listening to Accelerated Thinking brought to you by the Center for Talent Development at Northwestern University.